Hi, welcome back to the Woodsman Perspective Podcast. This is Brent. I'm in with Mitt and Chris, and today we're going to discuss food plots. But first, I want to tell y'all we appreciate all the feedback we've gotten so far and the support. If you like what we're doing, let us know. Leave us five stars on whatever platform you're listening to and maybe even a review. That kind of feedback helps us get established in this podcast algorithm and, and we get out there and we're searchable better. Now let's dive into food plots. Well, I think personally this is uh, probably the most anticipated time of the year is, is food plots. Um, even even more than, than opening day. I mean, it's, you know, when you start seeing those 3,000 Ford tractors and that Kubota that ain't been used all year that people's got on that shed and Friday night football. Friday night football. Coming down the road, trailers loaded too heavy. Um, you know, four wheelers with spreaders on them. It, it, it's it's food plot time, and and I think everybody, everybody, gets fired up about planting food plots. That's um, right. I mean, that's it's a it's just that it, I personally myself, it it, it kind of gets you. Hey, deer season's right around the corner. Yeah, and uh, you know you you always. You always grow up, dove hunt, first weekend of September, get food plots ready second week. Mm-hmm. That's right. I mean, or, or food plots ready the first shot of rain you see coming in September. That's right. And, and it, it's here. I mean, it's, it's right around the corner. And, and uh, you know, to, to start off food plot, we, before we start talking any kind of varieties and what we plant and this, I mean, we need to go back to the, to the origin and, and, you know, where do we put these food plots? You know, what's the, what's the best location? Uh, a lot of people don't think about it, um, but but we're going to jump into it, you know, location. Yeah, especially if you're setting up a new track or a new area or a new food plot and you've got sort of a clean slate and you got the option to put it where you want to. What, what, what goes into that decision? So what I'm thinking about on, on my tracks, I don't have the luxury of, of not always picking the sites. A lot of sites you inherit from whether you, you lease land or you buying a track, you got some open areas that you've got to, to, to work in on, on the food plots. <clears throat> so that's the first place that, that you're looking at, at establishing a food plot is your, is your, your places that are already established. Well, the other places, I'm going to be looking for places that have got good drainage, something that's uh, got well good soil type, high site index for, you, for your, your trees. Those are the types of soil types that I'm looking for the most productive type type food plots and you know where a lot of people make mistakes at it and look i've done it myself you you come in on a track and you find a weak air that the pines are dead or the pines didn't grow or or for some reason there's an opening there and we say hey man we'll just make a food plot there that's a good point free opening not necessarily not necessarily always the best spot it's and you know what there is a reason there is a reason that that spot is open and don't have trees growing on it it's either lacking something, whether, like you said, whether it's drainage, but that's where we always put them. When we ought to be putting them in the most highly productive places we have on our place. You know, I mean, that that's my opinion yep. uh, because I've made those mistakes in the past. Put them in a place and stay. Look, it looks great in September and October. November, December comes around, it's got six inches of water standing on it. And, and I mean, that's just how it is. Um, not productive at all. Not productive. And so not thinking. It's that convenient spot. I think is what we said before. And yeah. That's a good. That's a good point. An- another thing that I've I've learned just over making these mistakes in the past is where we're putting them 
as far as access. And there's two types of access that I'm thinking about is my access to the food plot and then inversely the deer's access to the food plot. And your access, that's twofold. That's your access with equipment and you got to be thinking about your access coming back hunting too. The hunter access. And actually I'm putting that ahead of of any of it, Brent. I'm not even really thinking about equipment access when I'm talking about access, although that's important. With that hunter access, I've just seen too many food plots of mine get jacked up over the course of a hunting season because the way that I'm coming in, ingress and egress out of the, the food plot, I, I can make or break a, the, the deer coming into it the way I'm, you know, hunting it. Well, even going back to our Growing a 150 podcast, we talk about pressure. And and what you, and that's what you're saying on access. You're, you're yep. talking about pressure coming into that track. Wind's not right. The deer see you get in. The deer see you get out. I mean, you're blowing them out of the field. If you're blowing them out of the field before they're ready to come in and you're blowing them out of the field when you get out of the stand, you're educating that deer every time. And, and people never think about that. You know, they'll come on a place. There'll be four or five deer on them. They blow them out, and they're thinking in their mind, well, they'll be back in a minute. And they may. But let me tell you something. That mature deer, he's going to get wise to it yeah. very you, easy. You bump him once or twice. He's gone. Yeah, you're going to be at the Sonic Drive-In before he gets to that food plot in yep. the evenings. And, you know, location, we talked about this before the before we started this, but location of, of how close you are to a good bedding cover. The proximity the to proximity. that. The proximity. I mean, lots of people say, you know, I asked them when I do a when I do a review of a track and I'll go on and, and, and walk through a place and I say, the first thing I ask them is, hey, where's your cover at? Where's your bedding cover? Oh, it's over here. Okay, so I'll look and a lot of times their bedding cover will be a quarter of a mile away from their nearest food plot. Great, great bedding cover, whether it's cut over, you know, pine plantations been burned, sprayed, or even even some, you know, native grasses. The long way off. The long way off. And, and, I, and I explained to them, look, when that deer gets up at 445, in which that's, I think we'll all agree that's a critical time that they usually get up. He gets up, stretches those legs. By the time he starts making his way toward that food plot, he's not going to get there until 630. Yeah. And so I've seen it on, on your tracks, Chris, and I'm trying to develop this into mine too, is that oftentimes – we, we got what we got on the food plots. You got some open ground. You got some stuff. So we're kind of having to deal with that or old established food plots. But what we can do, oftentimes it's easier to create bedding structure than it may create another food plot. And so we can manipulate that. And I know I've, on you, Chris, I've seen where we're putting in some, some uh, small patch clear cuts in close proximity to those food plots. And it'd be the difference between before you did that. I mean, deer coming in there right at dark versus starting to feed at, at, at 3.30 because you're putting them at such close proximity to that, to that food plot and that food source. Well, there's no question. I, I think we'll all agree that, that um, the closer you are to where they live, the quicker they are to get into that field to feed and earlier they get yep. there. Yeah. That's and right. that's what you want. And so that's, you know, as I'm thinking about these food plots and thinking about my access, the way that I'm coming in and out... I've done the same thing, those patch clear cuts or, or putting in some early successional habitat with a drum chopper or hack and squirt or however you want to do that to where I'm putting some thick cover in the opposite position of where I'm I'm in and entering the, the field. And that's made big, big headway on, on the amount of deer that are using the food plot, the time that they come into the food plot makes a big, big difference. You really want those deer to enter those fields away from where you're sitting. Okay. Right. I mean, opposite 
because you know uh, on, on my place and places I set up for people, I'll set them up a north wind stand, a south wind stand, a west wind stand. I mean, you know, and, and now we're getting a lot more east it's wind. The east wind, and it just stays the we've house. ever had, right? right. But um, <laughs> you know, it's just a, it's just, it, it's personal perception. But if they smell you, they're not coming in that field. Right. Bottom line. Yeah. And so, and we're, we're kind of teasing a little bit. We're, we got an ambition to do a podcast in, in the future, just how to set up a hunting track. So I don't want to, you know, get way off. That's right. In, get deep that. in stand location. That's right. That's right. But yeah. I know, you know, I when I first get in a track, I'm trying to make every piece of ground usable. Well, there's also some value to having some places on your track where the deer don't frequent. And those are the places that I'll be using to go in and out for my yep. food plot. That's right. So, well, Matt, you're the ag man, so we're gonna lean, we're gonna lean pretty heavy on you. That's what you do for a living. But you know, the the next thing that it's and you hear on a lot of different podcasts about food plots, but you know the the ag side of a food plot. Okay, you know it ain't just going and throwing 250 pounds of triple thirteen on this thing. Tell us what what some good. You know, you look at a lot of properties. Tell me what you see a lot of people, the, the number one mistake they make on a, on a food plot, failure versus success. T- kind of tell me what you what you look like on that. Well, each, each site's different. And so, um, you know, you've said it a few times in the past podcast. If we, if we learn and, and, a, and a student of the ground that we're on and we pay attention, oftentimes we can identify those limiting factors. And so there, there are several different things that I'm looking at when I'm, you know, looking at a food plot from a from an agronomic standpoint, and how can I make that maximize yield and whatever you know forage I'm growing, is you know one of the obvious things is fertility. And there's a lot of things that we can talk about within that fertility. But if I'm in a, an upland pine site, chances are that I could have some pH issues. And so you know, by not addressing that, it really eliminates anything else that I'm trying to do. Eliminates that as, as making my food plots better. And an example of that would be if I have a, a very low pH, very acidic pH, and I don't address that with lime. I mean, I can throw all the triple thirteen out I want to, and it's not going to make a difference. And so that pulling that that soil test will will take all, each one of those nutrients and give you a recommendation for each one of those, whether it be lime, pK, um, you know, all your your micros. If you're if you're missing one of those nutrients, and you can target straight to that nutrient. That's going to be the most efficient way that you're going to be able to increase your yield in your food plots. You know those those soil tests are not real hard. I've got two of them at my truck now, and you know you get them, you scoop that dirt in, in you know several spots in the food plot, put it in a little box, and then carry it to the co-op, and they'll send it off to the nearest university. Was it about ten dollars for yeah, a soil you know, test? You know, six to ten, ten bucks. And, and I think they email you the results, right? They, they do. So really, really easy, and it's generally a week's turnaround. So it's really no excuse in doing that, um, especially with the with the you know the, the input cost and, and just all the things that go into the, you know developing a food plot. We don't want to be spending a bunch of money on an input or a nutrient that's really not going to make any difference. It may not even right. be a limiting factor. It may not even we may, it may be high in that particular nutrient. Um, so when you start thinking about that, that broadcast, you know, fertilizer across all my food plots, a lot of times I, I feel like we're, we're wasting some, or even worse, we're not putting enough of that particular nutrient out in the spot because we're just treating all of them the same. Right. But, and now we're spread so thin, you know, any way you can increase your efficiency, your time's so valuable, a soil sample saves you a lot. It, it makes the time you put into this 
pay off a lot better. Yeah. And across a, a track, you've got you know upland sites and you got bottomland sites. Well, it's a good chance that I may need three tons of lime on that that upland red dirt where I get down in that creek bottom. I don't need any. And so you can see where I, if I start managing those food plots and, and going back to those soil samples, Chris, if you can look at, at topography differences, soil type color differences, a lot of times those will be indicators of where I can pull a soil sample. You know, if I got a food plot that's it's in the top and got elevation that drops down into the bottom, I may pull two different soil samples, you know, in that. One in the bottom and one, one up at the top. And chances are it's going to be different results. And I can treat that where I can maximize the efficiency and and the yield of those those forages from a soil fertility standpoint. Well, I know this because I've been enough places with you uh, on my place. You had me run a bulldozer putting putting V ditches across two of my fields. So drainage, Big. you know, tell a little bit about this drainage, what it does, because people really, I don't think people really understand what a little bit of water that's standing on a field would destroy the whole food plot. Yeah. Well, I mean, I won't I won't bore everybody on this, but. It, you learn that, especially from a production uh, ag aspect, we have technology on these combines, yield monitors. So I can see the yield on a particular spot. Well, here's what's interesting. I have a spot that may be two acres in size that I have a drainage problem that I can see with my eyes. It's actually affecting 15 or 20 acres based on that yield monitor. So drainage is huge and it, and it, and it really reduces production and yield way more than we may think we do. So if you've got a bad spot in your food plot that, that's a two acre food plot and you have a bad uh, you know, wet spot in the middle of it, it's really cutting production on that spot. So in your case, Chris, what we did is just really simple, just remove the high between the low and the ditch and making these swells so that water can get off that, that drainage, it can not be impeded by that water getting off that off that. I'll tell you this, it changed that whole life of that field just by getting that water where it gets out of there, gets in those little V ditches and got gone. I've done it the before. Creek, the creek stand, you know, we put a video out this week, uh, some deer in that field. That was and the that You can see that about. ditch. Yep. yep. You can see that ditch on our Instagram post, the, the ditch you're talking about, that V ditch. And I've even done that with a box blade. Start at the low and, and pull pull through that high, trying to fill in those low with a box blade, and uh, just making a channel to where that water can get out, where it's real shallow sides, where you can mow and plant across it real easy. So... And it's very easy if you're sitting in your deer stand. I mean, it's you get you some pin flags, and you can see it during the wettest time of year. You can see where the water stands. Just pin flag it. And, you know, always, and I do this. I do it all the time. I always make a mental note and make a note of things that need to be fixed. And 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 that's things that you can, you know, just by knowing your place and just paying attention. Yeah, being, being observant yeah. when you're out there. It's funny you say that on my notes on my iPhone. Each stand location when I'm sitting in there, I'm making observations and things that I want to do the next next growing season. And I'm always marking, making mental notes of, of you know drainage or trees that need to be cut down or whatever that that is. Well, if we start talking about fall poop plots, okay? Fall poop plots, kill plots, whatever you want to call them, um, which that's really the, the, you know, that's that's what gets everybody fired up getting in the field, you know. That's what 75 percent of people probably think about when you say food they do. plot they're that's right they're, they're that planting those, they're hunting, planting those plot. hunting plots i mean they want to got a shooting house and and they're sitting over a, a green field you know called a food plot green field whatever you want to call it same thing mm -hmm. but um you know i think we dive into um the techniques the proper techniques i i, I mean there's several techniques you can plant a field from like we was talking about taking a yard rake and, and putting them out and i can remember my first 
thing on a food plot I can remember is taking my daddy's till when I was 13 years old. And and he let us take it. We'd Every day after school, we'd take it. Probably used it five days in a row. Had an old logging road. We tilled on that thing, tilled on that thing. And and um, come back, threw us a, had us a bag of wheat, and we put it in a five-gallon bucket, and we went out there sowing it out, and your arm felt like it was about five foot long when you got through with it. But, but you know, that was the first time I'd ever remember planting food plots for a deer. And and I'm I'm 47 years old, so that would have been when I was probably 12 or 13. Did you return that tiller full of gas, Chris? Listen, I I felt so I, I got a great daddy, and and I remember him cutting those roots out of that tiller, and I know it took him two days, but he never said a word. But uh, no, that, I don't that's know. good stuff. I'm gonna say never, he probably said something. He may not have said something you know, to you, but I, he he was he probably didn't like it, but he didn't say anything. But you know, food plots are are. It's it's a big part of my life because I, I love to watch things grow and love to do them, and and I, I think us reaching out and, and telling some people, I get a lot of feedback like, how do you plant your fields? What do you do? So let's 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 kind of dive into, and then we'll go into mine. You know, all of our three favorite mixes that we use, and why we like those mixes. But um, you know, the 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 first technique people think about is is you know getting that field ready to plant. Okay. So we go in there, and we ain't probably, a lot of folks don't see those fields, so we go in there, we just spray them with herbicide, and then and they'll put a disc on them or a bush hog, and, and uh, let's, let's kind of walk into. Yeah, two well, the, I think it, it, we'd be remiss if we didn't go back to the, at least talk about the way we used to do it, is you walk away from a, a food plot in, in January, and you didn't think about it again until August the 20th. And when we went back to that food plot, That's it was correct. You know, seven feet tall in weeds. Yep. <clears throat> we took a bush hog in there and bush hog it down then you had thatch you know a foot deep in it and so we then we hooked to the disc and disc it 23 times and still can't get a you know you still can't see any dirt and so we've evolved since then and so that just we've got a few tracks that we're trying to manage now and more acres and that that doesn't fit our program anymore but i remember i don't know what you're talking about i remember discing a field you would get on a field and all day long you would you would disc two because you run over at one with that with that multi-purpose Monroe Toughline disc, and you and then everybody says we need a little weight on it, so piece we put, railroad yeah, put iron. a piece of railroad iron or Center a cross blocks. tie, yeah, yeah, on the back of it, and you disc and you disc and you disc, and and I never thought about it to to our now that we were discing all the moisture out of the field, yeah, a hundred percent. So it's it's all about efficiency now. And we all got you know places to be and got families, and we just can't. You won't have, have the time to do that like we used to and and where it takes you know 21 trips across the field to, to get a successful food plot well just with a little bit of, of, of planning a couple of times a year depending on you know what type of food plot that you had the year before you can go in there with a, with a herbicide a four-wheeler or, or UTV uh, spray rig put a herbicide on there to keep those weeds suppressed your ground is clean as a pin um, when you get ready to do your tillage or whatever you're doing, you're, you're conserving moisture and with one pass across the disc and then plant it. it I mean, the herbicide and keeping the fields burned down throughout the summer is, is a no-brainer. And, and when you're looking at a, at a cost of the herbicide against disking it as many times as we used to, no comparison. Well, what about cutting the money on bush hog? No doubt. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, the old camp work day, there was, there was one – one tractor with a bush hog and there's a disc coming pretty close behind it. Yep. And then the fellow with a four-wheeler spreader planting. That's right. right. 
So, you know, if – A section of chain link fence dragging behind him. <laughs> right. That man with a three-wheeler did that job. <laughs> yeah, that's he, right. He had that baseball drag. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but, you know, if you have an annual food plot, um, you know, annual clover or, a, you know, annual cereal grain, they're going to start, you know, to go backwards, you know, April, May. And so let the first weed flush come, say, the end of June – it may be up knee high and go in there and spray it down with Roundup. Maybe one more time at the end of July. Well, then the food plots it, it stayed clean all summer long, and uh, and you're gonna what little moisture you may be getting in that that time of the year, you're gonna conserve it. And when you when you break the ground the first time, it's uh it's gonna be there. I know a lot of people don't don't have access to one because they don't know how to do it, but they're very easy. But you know, about four or five years ago, I started planting with a no-till drill. And I first started, I rented it from the local NRCS. Almost every county's got one yep. that, they, that they'll rent out. And they're really cheap, maybe, what, $25 an acre or something? Yeah, I think it's know. less than that. Yeah, it's not real high. But, you know, I would, like you said, I would spray it with herbicide, kill it down, and then we'd go in there and drill it. You know, things got small box. You can put clovers and you can put your, your weeds and your, big, you know, your bigger seeds in there. But it, it, it's a no-brainer because where we would have to wait on an inch, inch and a half rain after we disked it, you know, 32 times and covered it and cultivated it. Now you can drill through it. You're planting with, yours, getting them up, and everybody within, else waiting on the rain. Within, yeah. within three days, that seed or four the days, that seed's coming up out of the ground. That's right. It, it's, it's really amazing. And, uh, you know, those things are more, they're getting more popular. People are getting them. And, uh, but you can rent those things. You, got, you know, you got to get your tail out there and get them, but you can go over a lot of ground. And they're so versatile too. I mean, yes. we're, you know, we'll talk about just a little bit about you know what we're doing for our summertime. But I mean, those drills we can plant our summertime mixes, we can plant our fall mixes. They're so versatile. And if you've done a good job of prepping your field and burning them down, like we're talking about now, Chris, that's a one-pass trip in the fall, and you're done. You're done. You're done. Now it looks different than than disking those food plots or run that tiller on them. I mean, that's a lot different. If you're used to conventional till. That's right. Having that field level and that's right. You know, just like your granddaddy's garden. That's exactly yeah, it's a right. little different look. Man, I had a question. Uh, a guy had emailed me and, and about timing. You know, when when is the best time to plant early versus planting them later? And and I guess early, I'm talking about August September planting versus a late October first two weeks of November planting. I mean, what is the pros and cons? What are some things that jump out at you as far as, as what yeah. the timing? Well, don't you love the answer? It depends. Yeah, yeah. it does. <laughs> that, so that, much. That, that, it does. That's though. one of those questions that it really depends. And so the way that I'm thinking about it, and I have food plots on, on different farms that I'm having to manage between early and late. And the way that I'm thinking about that is on the early planting side, you get the luxury of that early growth in, in September, assuming we get the rains, and those food plots can take that real early jump. And that's really good in places where I have a lot of deer pressure, where these deer are really pounding on, as opposed to planting a little bit later. And I don't get that early um, growth when the nighttime temps and, and daytime temps are warm, and I get that, that flush of, of growth early. If I have, if I wait till late and I miss that and have a, a high deer population with a lot of pressure on my forage. I mean, my food plots, they will look weak all season long. And so that's one way that you can kind of play that, that timing game. Um, there's also some, some drawbacks to that <clears throat> planting early is if you don't have the deer pressure and you have a, a long warm fall and those food plots get up big and rank, a lot of times they can use the lose their palatability and the deer don't, you know, the preference is not there on that. Um, something else too that we need to be thinking about is 
the infamous army worms. Mm-hmm. Army worms, yes. if you're not paying, if you plant early and you're not watching them and paying attention, that first one will be for practice. Yeah, I walked around <laughs> the yard today checking my Bermuda. Yeah. I've been babying that Bermuda. I was looking today. I mean, I, I've got a place on the up by the river that we plant for ducks. And, I mean, every year, you know those minutes I call you, they're back. Yep. Every year I plant it. I'm going to have to spray army worms. I, I keep stuff ready on site. And you I get called sleeping. Listen, it's a disappointment. I it check doesn't them. take long oh. either. I check that field three times a week. Yeah. And then two times won't be any worm. Then the third time they're there, and then you give them three days, they done walked across two acres of it. Yeah. And there's some good safe insecticides. When I say safe, I mean the insecticides where it's safe for, for you know, us to put it out there. They're not dangerous. That gives you some long residuals. So if you can catch them out there and, and apply that, that insecticide at the, at the proper rate and the, and the right uh, insecticide, it can give you a long residual. We don't have to be out there checking them, you know, twice a week. But I'm going to tell you something. Whether you plant early or late, what you said earlier, if getting that plot ready to plant, you can't get it ready too early. Getting it sprayed, if you bush hog, getting it bush hog, getting it sprayed, getting it disked for its time, and getting it ready. So when you do see, because look, like we said, we're, we're fighting for time always. Plus, we're fighting for moisture in the fall of the year. Yeah, that time of now, year, I mean, those, yeah, you know, some I mean, of those rains can be precious. That's, that's right. right. Well, you're waiting on hurricane. Very rarely, you know, we have seen these big fronts coming through. But when you do, you know, use that phone. Everybody's got these cell phones now. Use that phone, and when you see that rain coming, you get you get there go and get, get in line at the co-op. You go get Run your like seat. your pants are on fire. You you find that bag that's got that biggest deer on it, and you get in there and you get that seed. And that's just what you got to do. Speaking of the bag with the with that biggest buck on the, on the picture. Um, that's way, my favorite mix. Yeah, that's the way a lot of people I think <laughs> pick their mixes. That's right. It's a it, it is a million and million dollar business. Yeah, marketing seed. Marketing, marketing is seed unbelievable. Blends. And we got some good local seed. That's we right. Do. We got some good local seed blends around here that that I really like. And and uh, and I think we dive in. I get a lot of people ask me, Chris, what do you plant? Well, you know, what is what do you what do you plant? And I tell them, they kind of look at me. But, I, but I'm going to tell you, my personal and, and variety-wise, what I like is um, is a cereal grain. And, and I usually use a three-way, a three-way mix. This is my personal favorite. It's what I use. I use a three-way mix. It's got Elbon rye, wheat, and oats. Okay, that's three good grains. Um, and then what I'll do after I drill those, and I usually drill about 120 pounds per acre in those fields. So when I drill that, and I know it's really heavy, but you think about it, you, if I'm feeding a lot of deer, I've got a lot of mouths biting it. And, and uh, so once I do that, I'll come over the top with either uh, a, a brassicas or a clover, which, which I've been very, very fond to jump on the Belenza fixation clover. Uh, it's a clover out of Oregon, and it, it is, the, the deer just really destroy it. They like it. It's very palatable to them, and, and they just, they like uh, the taste of it, and, and I'll, I mean, basically, I don't do nothing flashy, but that's what I use. Um, I well, don't use the, the seven-way mix and, and different ones because majority of my stuff is in a, in a wetter, wetter spot. What I heard you saying is that you're very intentional about the varieties you put on, on the ground that you have. And so going back to those, and you, Chris always makes a joke about that 11-way mix with that big buck on the bag. Well, there's a reason why they have that 11-way mix. Uh, a, a seed company when they're making those blends, that blend's got to be, but got to be good from East Texas to South Carolina. 
I mean, and, and you know, every region's got their, their seed companies that they, they, they do. And the reason they put that, that amount of different forages in there is because they know during that geographic region that they're selling that seed, something in that bag is going to turn green when they put it in the ground. And so really it's, it's there, it's the seed company's insurance policy to make sure that no matter where this seed gets spread, I've got something in that bag that's going to that's gonna do well and it's going to thrive. So what, on the flip side of that, if I'm really paying attention and understanding what's doing best on, on my ground, I can forego that seed company's insurance mix, if you will, and go straight to the heart of the ones that perform the best and, and yield the best and have the highest preference on my farm. And, uh, and so when you're thinking about managing those forages, sometimes they can, they can contradict each other from uh, an aspect of, of maybe some herbicide tolerance or some uh, maturity dates that will be in that could interfere with some other things that, that, that we may be doing. So I'm buying some things maybe in that mix that I don't need that, that aren't contributing to my piece of ground. Well, they're going to be plant. hard to manage. Harder to manage. And a good example would be that, you know, in our, in our clover mixes, Chris, we, we come in there in, in February, early March, and we'll spray some select in 2,4-DB. And that'll take out all the broad leaves. It's selective, uh, you know, with the clover. Uh, it'll, it'll allow the, the clover to thrive and take out all your other broad leaves. Well, if I have something else in, that I've paid for in that mix that's not a legume, then obviously that herbicide is going to take it out. And so what I'll try to do is if I do want to plant some of that, I'll try to separate it. And I'll have a different management uh, regime um, in, that, in that case. It makes a lot of sense. You know, that, that wild deer lettuce that, that you always make jokes about, but, it, you know, it's hard to manage. You, they're they're different species, mm -hmm. so when you spray them, they're gone. That's right. I mean, you're gonna get them. You're gonna make that clover come up, but you're gonna kill that other stuff. That's right. And uh, it, it's a um, it, it can it can be tricky when there's seven different. You know, we laugh, but there's seven different seeds in that mix, and and um, it it'd be tricky when you're trying to manage it. Yeah. On uh, the kind of the mixes that that I've settled into, I've got three or four different plans i guess you will depending on the soil type and where i'm putting it but the the mix that i like on my drier sites that are a little more droughty um, would be a, a crimson clover and a wheat i know chris you do a lot of uh um the the three-way um cereal grain mixes wheat i've just kind of um, settled on that that wheat side it's cheap it's pretty winter hardy um and it's it's easy to establish and a lot of times i'll i'll supplement that as a companion crop to whatever clover I'm, I'm putting out there for that quick um you know early fall you know um cereal grain and so it's, have something for the deer to forage on really early maybe even an early bow, bow season mix and then um and so we can talk about the the the, the, the varieties and the, and the and the pounds per acre that we're, we're um talking about there but on the wheat mix you know, generally 100 to 125 pounds. If you're drilling it, you can cut that back a little bit. Uh, broadcast, I like to put out a little bit more to take into account, you know, see that may not germinate or I may not have them in that, 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 um, that, that zone with good seed soil contact, so I'll up the rate on that. Um, on my wetter spots, Chris, you've already mentioned that Balanza Clover is, is magic. Um, Bronson, the first year you had it, Bronson had it in his test plots and it does good across a lot of different soil types, but really where it, it thrives and really shines against the other forages is in wet soil. I mean, it is really unbelievable. I've got it where it, it's, it, 
nearly grows hydroponically. It's unbelievable. And, and something else, too, that, that Bronson saw in his studies was that, that, um, that the preference. When he was looking at the utilization cages and had cameras on each one of those, his forage types, the Balanza was second dynamite. to none dynamite. I mean, I'm going to tell you now that the, we had a flood year last year it, where, where one of my fields I know flooded 17 times. I mean, I counted them. And my Balenza just flourished. You know, all the other stuff died out. That Balenza, strong. And, and they like it. I'm telling you, they really, really eat it. It's kind of hard to get a hold of, but it is it is amazing um, that those deer eat it like that. You better already order it early because it's uh, it is – we don't have very many dealers in the area. And it's a red clover. Belenza's a red clover, so everybody that's you know, understand the difference in a red and a white clover, uh, it, it's an annual, so it will play out. And I think um, the end of May, 1st of June is when I usually, it usually kind of, you know, it usually plays out for me. Yeah. Um, unless it's, unless it's, we have a cooler type year. But um, are it's you seeing a, about the same time on yours? Yeah, it is, but it's one thing, it's a prolific reseeder. It, uh, I've got some that's five years old that, you know, if you take care of it and keep the weeds off of it for you know through that the uh, next fall, um, man, it'll come back strong, strong, strong. Right. You know, a lot of clovers that that we use in in managing roadsides. You know, and, and I tell this that you know a roadside is one of the easiest grounds that you can get what I call free ground to manage it. And we do a lot of white clovers, Durana white yep. clover. I know you yep. you know you put me on that seven eight years ago. And, and I'm still, I mean, I've got some at seven years old. Well, I hate a bush hog. And so that's where I found that that, that Durana clover is magic for me is I can plant all my roads and roadsides in that Durana and then manage that with a, with a spray rig. And Chris, my, my bush hogging has nearly gone to zero. But I can tell you what, ain't those turkeys have gone up. No doubt about because it. Because those wide roadsides, 75 foot wide roads with that clover in them, they're going to spend time in them all the time. Yeah. And and it really it doesn't matter if you got a little thicker timbering tracks, which, you know, it, it they really those wide roadsides really really work well. Yeah. I noticed when we we're talking varieties and techniques, both of y'all mentioned that uh, when you when you're picking a seed or even the tools you use, you're not just thinking about that that plot succeeding in the fall when you plant it. You're you're looking ahead into how you treat that piece of ground when you start spraying herbicides in the spring so y'all have got a system that goes beyond just this you got a fall plot and a summer plot y'all are doing sort of a 365 let's talk about you alls system that y'all are both doing on your places yeah so what we've been experimenting with i've been doing it for three or four years now and, and really i feel like we've kind of honed in on what works the best but on my particular site it's it's generally got um poor internal drainage uh heavy black black prairie type soils so the balanza does really really good and so if i can get a good stand of balanza clover and then it starts to mature in you know may early june what i'll start what i've started doing now is coming in and planting some hot summer foods when i call hot foods corn and beans into that that balanza so as it's starting to mature and senesce down i'm planting my corn and beans into it and then the next subsequent fall i've got standing um corn and if i've managed that thing right we've got adequate rainfall um you know i can make you know 100 140 bushel corn um and then have adjacent 
soybeans right there. And I'm looking at soybeans a little bit different than most folks. Most folks think about soybeans as a forage crop. Well, obviously that's, that's a big benefit when you're thinking about soybeans. But another thing that I really, really like about is the grain production. And so I'm, I'm picking my soybean varieties not just on forage quality, but also soybean yield because you, it, it, it's tit for tat when you start looking at, at, at deer feeding in that grain in the winter, corn versus soybeans, I, I would hate to pick which one they, they prefer most. And when I'm sitting in the stand looking at both of them, it's, uh, it, it's really, really good. I've been dual cropping, which I call double cropping. I've been double cropping, I don't know, for about seven years. And, and um, it, I think nutrition-wise, whether I use a cowpea, a soybean, or whatever, or vetch, vetch is a really, really good summertime food. And overlapping that food, you know, you hear this, not clearing the table. Mm-hmm. Well, that is a big thing is when that bell, when that, when that white-tailed deer wants to eat, whether, and, and look, they eat all day long. I mean, whether they want to eat at 8 o'clock in the morning or 4.45 in the evening or at the middle of the night, they know they can stand up and go to that food plot, and I've got something at that food plot there for them almost 365 days out of the year. Yeah, and a lot of people, and and all of us back in the day, were only really worried about what that deer's eating for about three months out of the year. That's right. So this system, you know, you're you're keeping them something to eat all the time. We laugh. We call it the system, but the system, (laughs) here's what the system has done for us on tracks that we've managed. You can go out there at 2 o'clock in the daytime, there'll be 15 or 20 deer in the field. That's the system. Yep. That's, that's doing time. Everything that we talk about in this podcast is what we're doing on our personal lands. Now, we make our share of mistakes, but that system lets us, instead of waiting until 4.30 to 4.45 to see your first deer, yeah. by 4.45, our deer's done gone back in there to, let, to bed down. They, I mean, they're they, so used to that plot. They're so used to going that food plot. They've been eating on that food plot since the spring. They can count on all it through the food. summer. They know it's there. They don't have to look and go on other properties. And that's just not a big property. That's small properties too. You can manage small properties the same way as big properties. You've got to keep them something there. All right. Yeah. They. Um, we'll try to post some pictures of, of what we're doing on this uh, double crop system that, that Chris is talking about, um, especially on the, the beans and corn because the next fall. I'll have that that Balanza clover germinating up under standing um, beans and corn, and it's it's no better food plot around. Period. Yeah, and you start talking companion crop. It's not just that you've got food all year long, but these plants, they uh, some of the plants you're planting, like it reduces the inputs and the fertilizer you have to do because they they support each other. So that's one thing that I'm really interested in and how can I cut expense or cut trips um, with the amount of acres that, that we're managing in different tracks just is such an inconvenience to have to go out there you know multiple times a year so anything that I can do to cut a trip cut some money out I'm doing it so to that point Brent um, I, my corn uh, no, nitrogen fertilizer is a big, big expense when you start raising corn well I have yet to put one pound of nitrogen out because of that what, you, what you're referring to when I'm rotating that with my soybeans and then two crops of Balanza in the fall, it's three legume crops between each corn rotation. Um, I'm growing some 100, 140 bushel corn without any nitrogen. And I've been, I've been on him hard about being tight and not spending that money on that nitrogen. I'm out there pulling the buggy 
well, my truck and, and fertilizer, but he's right. He's, he's, I've seen the ears, and that must make me throw up because I've looked at mine that I've fertilized versus his, and it, tit for tat, they're, they're right there together. Yeah, it's a, it's it's a really good system. And if you got the acreage and, and got the resources, you know, a planter and a drill, it'd be something to it'd be something to try because the the sleeper and all this we're talking about deer, but if you can have the the acres timed right to where I can make enough yield where the deer can not have it eat up by March, and then you start bush hogging that that corn down in March mm. in preparation of planting the next year's summer crop, if you got any turkeys within ten miles. <laughs> They gonna be on your track. It's magic. It's yeah. magic. It is, and I'm gonna tell you something, y'all. Everybody knows how much deer love corn, but let me tell you something. They love standing corn just the same. It will pull every deer in the country on that corn, and 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 the way that uh, we planted the first block, uh, we planted out at my place about eight acres, and I said, man, how am I gonna manage this stuff? It's like a maze, you know. They just about seven foot tall. He said, I want you. To, we're gonna cut rows. I'm like, whatever. Let me tell you, we cut rows every every two weeks. We cut three or four rows of corn. And 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 the place we planted, I didn't want to make a mistake. We usually see three or four or five deers on the front of the place. It's not really it's not really a hot spot. So for you, didn't the deer. Have, you didn't have a whole lot of confidence in it. Yeah, I didn't well I just wanted to <laughs> you see. catch that mid. He said, I, I didn't want to make a mistake. That's yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> he, he gave me the gar hole. He, he, didn't, he didn't let me put it in the best spot. No. <laughs> but I'll tell you this. He put it on that guest field. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Two different times we saw over 40 deer. And, and I mean, you talking about it. I called him one day on the phone. I said, you ain't going to believe this. There's 40 deer out here. And they said, they're coming, from, they're coming from behind me, coming across the roads. I mean, I pulled every deer in the country. And what I've learned, you would think they'd just be out there feeding it at random. But when you bush hog that down, they go straight to it. Right where you bush hog, they do. They went right to that, and and, and it's kind of like they were waiting. And I didn't have I didn't have problems. You know, you, you talk about bush hogging corn in the middle of December, but you'd rut a little bit. But I'm gonna tell you something: you, you scatter that corn, they would rather eat that corn off the ground than no eat it out of a feeder yeah. anytime. I, I hope none you. of my neighbors listen to this podcast. Uh, <laughs> maybe maybe we're not. But that's, I'm going to tell you something. The, the food plots, uh, and I think they laugh at me, but I, but I love them. I'm, I'm like a kid in a candy store. I, I've, I have planted every variety of that stuff that's cool and and, and You said out. it at the yeah. beginning now, and then it's, it's true. It's anticipated I, I, now. I'll, Tell me. I'll back you up. You get into food plots as much or more than, than most people get into that opening. You know, early season hunting when everybody else is already telling a big buck story and showing pictures. Chris ain't even been in the woods yet. He's he's planting. Right. He's showing pictures of his grain drill. <laughs> I like it. I'm telling you, it's it's a um, and, and and everybody. I think it's it's part of part of the resource that we enjoy and, and manage. It, it, I mean, that's a it's a it's a big part of, of everything about yeah. the hunting and land management. That's right. I we've been I don't know how long we've been we've been talking. You know, 45 minutes and and. The, the word ryegrass never came up. Isn't that something? I mean, what? Well, I'm finna, I'm finna throw it out there because they've been on me hard. Deer will eat ryegrass. I see they gave me wearing me out. <laughs> Just because they eat it doesn't make there a good is, idea. It, 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 it's hard to get out of a place, but they will eat it. I have planted on my roads for erosion control, yeah. and I and and I'll see a deer on there eating. I'll take a picture of every one of them, send it to Mitt. Say, look right here, look right here, <laughs> eating that ryegrass. <laughs> those old legacy on the, you get on those tracks, those old legacy spots, those food plots where ryegrass is planted every year. Oh, and it's hard to get out of there. Now it took me back, six yeah. or seven years to get it out of that 
one of those canal fields. It's, yeah. it's terrible. Well, I'm going to say ryegrass is a good place to land this plane. Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. All right. Well, look, guys, I enjoyed it. Uh, that's a good podcast. I hope y'all hope y'all enjoyed it. Uh, we got more to come. Yep. We got more to come. We appreciate everybody listening. Yeah. And, and uh, like please send us on. questions. Yeah. We appreciate the feedback. We've got a lot of good feedback. Uh, give us a review and a like. Hit five stars. And let's do it again next week. See y'all. Thank you.